This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased. But we do need your support. So leave a review on Apple or Spotify. And share with your friends or on social media. In today's conversation, we speak with Rob Hopkins, who is a co-founder of Transition Network and the author of the Transition Handbook, and most recently, From What Is to What If, Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. He hosts the wonderful podcast series, From What If to What Next, which invites listeners to send in their what-if questions and then explores how to make them a reality. In 2012, he was voted one of the Independent's top 100 environmentalists and was on Nesta and the Observer's list of Britain's 50 new radicals. Rob is an inspiring speaker who has spoken at TED Global and three TEDx events. His ideas and perspectives on imagination are crucial today in order to solve our most pressing issues like climate change. He is thoughtful, open-minded, and imaginative. He blogs at transitionnetwork.org and robhopkins.net. Today, we talk about why imagination is so crucial and how creativity has been in decline since the 1980s. We need to have creative ideas to first envision a better future before creating that future. Without the ability to imagine something better, we cannot create those changes. He explains the importance of boredom and what factors have contributed to decreasing our imagination. We explore alternative options for mental health treatment and prevention. And at the end, he shares with us his inspiring vision for 2030. This was a really great conversation and very inspiring. We hope you enjoy it. Now, on to the conversation. Hi, Rob. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today. I'm a fan of all the work that you do. I love your podcast, loved your book. So I'm really excited to be in conversation with you. Bless you. You're very kind. It's lovely, lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) So I would love to just start out with your origin story. How do you become involved in collective imagination and what is collective imagination? Oh, goodness. Origin story. Uh, How far back does an origin story go? I guess I went to art school when I was 18 for a year. And then I spent a few years just traveling around. I'm not somebody who went from school to university. I didn't go to university till I was 24. So I spent time traveling around. I lived in Italy for three years. I went to India and Pakistan and places. And uh, my first I mean, I was always into music and into drawing and reading. And so I always had a very kind of creative, imaginative life. And I guess I was really lucky that my parents sort of supported me in having quite an imaginative childhood where I was allowed to be bored, which I think is a really precious thing for our imagination, rather than just filling our kids every waking hour with some kind of stimulus. Uh, So then I discovered permaculture I got really really into permaculture when I was about 22 and it really and then I went to university as I said and did one of the first kind of sustainability degrees in the UK 
and then moved to Ireland and spent 10 years kind of putting permaculture into practice, setting up one of the first eco-village projects there, building cob houses and straw bale houses and teaching people permaculture, set up the first two-year full-time permaculture course in the world. And then in 20, 2005, moved back to the UK and started this thing that became the transition movement, which was really just initially a kind of an experiment in our town to see if something might work here. And it took off and you'll now find transition groups in about 50 countries around the world. The imagination piece came in about 2018 when I kept reading people who I really admire, like Bill McKibben and Naomi Klein and Amitav Ghosh, who kept saying in slightly different ways, climate change is a failure of the imagination. And something about that kind of got underneath my skin. I thought, is it? What do you mean? How, what? Like, how would we know if it was? And why does that matter? And and it set me off on this inquiry where I did a kind of a year and a half sabbatical that was doing the research for, for what is to what if. And, and it gave me a kind of a different way of looking back on what I had done so far in terms of the transition movement really being uh, a kind of an imagination project, you know, a, a what if project. And... And then you said, what, what was the second bit of that? So what, what do I mean by imagination? Yeah. What, what is collective imagination? What is collective imagination? So, so imagination, obviously there's the things that we do on our own, our, our own individual imagination, our ability to dream and, and imagine different things. My favorite definition of imagination is by John Dewey, who was an educationalist who described it as the ability to see things as if they could be otherwise. And so for me, the collective imagination is so important because climate change is so urgent and so vast and so existential and so all-encompassing. And we have so little time available to really do it to really respond to it, that it demands that we reimagine everything, our education system, our food system, our energy system, everything. And I feel like the only way we're going to do that is if it feels like a move towards something thrilling, delicious and irresistible, rather than being dragged away from something irreplaceable. And you can only build something if you can imagine it first. And I found really interesting research that suggested our collective imagination uh, is in decline and has been in decline since the mid nineties. And that really, really matters because I would hate our epitaph as a civilization to be really, we couldn't think of anything better, you know, really, it would just be the most pathetic way to go to slide beneath the waves. So, uh, so for me, that's why it's so important because you can only build something if you can imagine it first and it's something we have to do together and, and we ha- and our, we have to boost that collective imaginative capacity i think wow that's that's so beautiful and and inspiring i completely resonate with that i mean the climate crisis is a being in the healthcare field is a public health crisis mm. and both in medicine and in climate change i feel like 
you, what you were saying, the collective imagination has just been in decline. Like that's the, something that really bothered me in the allopathic training of medicine is chronic disease is increasing drastically. Like six in 10 Americans have a chronic disease and it just continues. Yet we haven't changed the way that we treat folks. Like there's no holistic treatment because we've always done it this way. Mm. Um, and then similar with the climate crisis and me working on agriculture, this is how ag has always been done. This is how crops have always looked. This is how farmers have always done it. And there's no imagination into making any changes for that. So I, I really mm. resonate with that. And so you you mentioned that some of um, the studies show that the collective imagination has been in decline since the 1990s. What do you think are some of the factors that have led to this decline? Yeah, it's a good question. There's a woman called Kyung Hee Kim who wrote that a paper called The Creativity Crisis, which if you're listening, you can just find online. And uh, in her paper, she attributes that decline to the, the decline of play in in society that kind of free unstructured what if let's pretend kind of play which our i think young our kids and young people today do a lot less than 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 people who grew up in the 50s 60s 70s used to do uh, the rise of screens in our lives which just devour that kind of daydreamy imaginative space i always when i do talks i always like to say to people you know imagine you're in the yellow house in arles in 1888 and vincent van gogh comes into the kitchen with a beautiful bunch of sunflowers and he arranges them on the table in a little yellow in in a little earthenware pot and sits back to look at them as the sunlight streams in through the window and then he thinks oh i must just check my instagram and my Facebook and my TikTok and all of that, none of those paintings would ever have happened. You know, and then two hours later, he would have been watching videos of skateboarders falling downstairs with no memory of why he even started watching that. You know, how many of the ideas, the insights that we need in this time now to get us out the other side just never emerge because we think instead, oh, I wonder, I'll just check uh, my uh, TikTok or whatever it is, you know. It's like we, we so so we have these, these screens just devour the, that time and they are designed to be addictive in a way that's so hard for us to resist. Uh, and also she said it was due to the rise of testing in schools. I think it's also, I would add to that, that I think it's it's an inevitable outcome of of the rise in uh, of, of the of the demise of our collective attention spans, it's an it's an inevitable side effect of the rise of inequality in society, because we know that trauma, anxiety, uh, stress are toxic to the imagination. That systemic racism, patriarchy, uh, the sort of the creation of of a sort of a of a kind of a, an underclass or whatever is deeply damaging to people's imagination. Uh, there's also lots of interesting research, I think, about how when you live in a world where the diversity of the natural world around you is declining, I think that also has an impact on our on our imagination. Rene Dubois, a microbiologist, used to say, if we lived on the moon, our imagination would be as barren as the moon. And I think when we live in a world where we've lost 70% of the creatures we share this planet with during my lifetime, I think that has an impact as well. I think the 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 eradication of of um art from our education system. 
and also there's a guy called Mark Fisher who argues that it's just kind of what capitalism does is it shuts down the future. It kind of co-ops the future and means the future disappears. You know, in the late 60s, we had people like Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy who talked about the future in terms of visions and dreams and possibilities and things that made you think, I want that. I want that future you're talking about. It doesn't really happen anymore. So I think a big part of what we need to be doing now is really reconnecting people to the possibility of of a future and what an extraordinary future we could still have if we were to do everything we we could do. So I think it's like, I feel like there's a kind of a perfect storm of things that together are profoundly damaging to our to our imagination, and uh, and we need to look at it in that way. Wow. Um... Yes, I, I feel just even in my own education, everything is so uh, focused on test taking and algorithms and there is no, I, I really enjoyed Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. Um, no, which, I haven't read that yet. Yeah, oh, no, yeah. it's I almost exactly that. what you were just, just saying about our attention span just being completely stolen and, and the basis of capitalism too. I mean, all of this really, really stems from that. Like the reason why we have all of these algorithms on TikTok and Instagram is just to make more money and money and sell more ads and such. So yeah, I mean, it, it's that the, there's a guy who who uh, wrote a book that I read who put it really beautifully. He said, you know, the thing is, we have this technology where we sit down with a task in mind and then we end up completely distracted. So oh, I must write an I must write an email to my friend Rhiannon, and then you know an hour later you're watching old reruns of Friends on on YouTube. And why am I? How did I? What what was I even doing? I can't even remember. And he said it's like if if you bought a sat nav for your car, uh, and you said take me to uh, San Francisco, and you ended up in Boston, you'd say this is the most rubbish thing. What a totally useless technology. But somehow we keep using these technologies that just distract and fracture our attention all the time. And it's the the, the thing that really troubles me is what happens to us to a culture that can't concentrate anymore. As our attention span gets shorter and shorter, our critical thinking becomes less and less discerning. You know, I feel a lot of what we see in politics in the UK and in the US at the moment is is kind of part of the result of that. You know, people don't have the attention span anymore for complex issues. People don't have the ability to concentrate. And the imagination also needs us to have a good attention span, I think. And, uh, and I think that's one of the factors that's playing into this. Absolutely. So a lot of the themes that you explore in in your book is related to human health, including connection. Um, So loneliness is super detrimental to our health. It's as bad as a risk factor as smoking. Um, So why is connection back to local communities so important? I think you, you were talking earlier about how important it is to look things holistically and to connect things and to join things up and uh i was recently in holland in in utrecht in holland and i went there because of a project that i'm doing where it's the city that has i think the most impressive bicycle rush hour in Europe. So it's a city where 33,000 people cycle into the center of the city every day. And in Holland, the government, and it's just amazing. And they have like, uh, they have all these, like in most cities, you have underground car parks for the cars that come in. In Utrecht, they're for bikes. They have one 
They have many, many through the centre. One of them will accommodate 12,500 bicycles in one underground bike park. It's just, it just was awesome. The Dutch government's philosophy is every year they invest half a billion euros in building new cycling infrastructure. And that doesn't mean just painting a few bicycle symbols on the road. It means building separate bike lanes. You go all around the city. You never need to be in contact with a bicycle, with, with, with a car. It's when you normally, I'm sure when you come into LA, in most cities, you have the same thing. You have these big signs that tell you where all the car parks are and how many spaces there are available in those. Those are all for bicycles in Utrecht. And what they, the way they figure it is that we spend half a billion euro every year on infrastructure. It saves us 19 billion euros in health costs every year. So the average person in, in the Netherlands lives six months longer than the average, than the European average because of that. I recently did a, a podcast uh, recording, which will be going out in a few weeks, about homelessness with some guys uh, in the US who said that they reckoned that it cost $96,000 a year for somebody to be homeless, and it would cost about 17000 to actually give them somewhere to live and all the support that they need, you know, because... The ninety-six thousand is on all the antisocial behaviour, the health costs, the the all the, the criminality, all the different things that happen when people aren't properly housed. So, so for me, it's like we need to start joining all of this stuff up and and and, and to say actually, um, supporting people's imagination is good for their mental health, and all of this stuff all ties in together. If we provide housing for people in a city with cleaner air and with urban agriculture and good all the stuff that all the stuff that we know we need to do it all ties together in a way people keep saying yeah but you know how would you how would you pay for a low carbon future it's like what are you talking about and we we it's so much of it just makes so much sense because it, you're, you're joining things up we should be looking at at providing housing for people as being part of a city mental health strategy we should look at baking as being the new Prozac. We should look at urban agriculture as being the new Prozac. All of this stuff ties together. So it's about it's about bringing in a, a different way of thinking where we start to join the dots up much more, I think, rather than saying, that's a mental health problem, that's a housing problem, that's a biodiversity problem. It's like we can tackle all of this stuff together. That's why for me, when I studied permaculture in my early 20s, it was so transformative. It kind of rewired my brain because you you start to think in terms of systems. You start to think how nature thinks, that nothing exists in isolation from anything else. It's all connected. And we need to be we, we need to be doing a lot, a lot more of that kind of thinking, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh I I think that there's a transition in, in medicine to think of the body as more systems based than just there's the brain and then there's the heart and then there's the kidneys and you have, and, the each, and, the, <laughs> and there's each specialist who works on each part of the body. And everyone's yeah. like, we have to be more holistic, but we also are connected to our environment. We're connected to our community. So we're not just like one individual human in a silo, in a vacuum. Everything is connected, like you were saying. And you touched on mental health, which, I mean, there's there's a rise in mental health issues um, drastically, especially since COVID. And uh, in your book, you mentioned art angels and some creative ideas for, for treating mental health. Um, my partner is a psychiatrist, um, physician, resident physician here at UCLA. Um, 
And so mental health is, is really important to us. So do you mind just walking through why we need more creative solutions for mental health and what some of those examples are that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we I'm reading a really good book at the moment called Sedated, which is all about mental health and uh, making the point of, of course, we've got a mental health ap- epidemic because society is totally mad and 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 because people when people are traumatized and isolated and lonely and ignored and experience systemic racism and patriarchy and and have to get tens of thousands of dollars in debt in order to have an education and have an education system that just is shoving them through a sausage machine and then have nowhere to live and then live in cities where that where they know the air is making them sick and are eating food that they know is making their children sick and and so on and so on and so on of course like really it's like people come when i give talks people say oh but what about eco-anxiety i'm like eco-anxiety is like really just shows that you're paying attention and you've got a pulse. No, it's the people who don't experience eco-anxiety, the ones that we, we really need to worry about. If you are a kind of in any way sensitive uh, person paying attention to the world around you, I mean, I'm amazed that every single person doesn't have mental health. You know, and, and we see it, we see it as society becomes more unequal it's not just that it's the people at the bottom who suffer from from mental health you know it's the, the people at the very top do as well it's 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 a it's a ridiculous system which is designed to to isolate and so 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 when we look at mental health and we say well it's it's uh, it's because of a chemical imbalance in your brain it's like no, 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 no. It's the whole system around this person. What was their What was their education like? What was their family like? What's like What's their housing situation? What's their uh, uh, What are their prospects? What's how you know all of? We have to look at all of that stuff together. So, Art Angel, which you mentioned, is one of the stories that I tell in the book because I became fascinated doing the research about that part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is where your memory and your imagination both fire from. And in many ways, memory and imagination are the same thing. When you're being imaginative, you're basically looking through the kind of of store cupboards of your memory and going, ah, what happens if I put this together with this? So when we're trying to imagine a low carbon future we can only really be as imaginative as we have stories that we've heard of of how it might work if we've never heard of any other way of growing food than growing it on a massive farm and covering it in chemicals of course it's hard to imagine a different way of doing stuff because we don't have those stories so i were and 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 the thing that i found that fascinated me was that the hippocampus is the part of the brain that is particularly almost uniquely i think vulnerable to cortisol so when we have stress trauma anxiety it shrinks by up to 20% people with ptsd are found to have a, a hippocampus 20% smaller children who have very kind of adverse childhood experiences have a smaller hippocampus and when that happens it makes it much harder for us to see the future in hopeful and positive ways and we get very stuck in the present and stuck in the past so i wanted to try and find somewhere where they were intentionally creating the conditions to rebuild the hippocampus because i was like well is it even possible how would you do that and so i i I like to think of 
Archangel as being a campus for the hippocampus. It's like it's a place that is set out to support people with mental health problems, with burnout, with exhaustion, stress, but using art. So they say when you walk through the, it, it's in the middle of Dundee, in the city centre, it's a first floor office of an office block. And they say, when you walk through the door, you're not a patient or a client, you're an artist and you're preparing work for an exhibition. And every year in the biggest gallery in Dundee, they do an exhibition of work from Art Angel. And people, when I went there, knew that I was going to be coming in and they were really happy to talk to me. I spoke to one woman who said, I have two beautiful small children, a partner who really loves me. And six months ago, I came that close to taking my own life. I just couldn't see the point of any of it at all. And I've been coming here for six months and now I can see the future again. I'm, I'm, I make the future is coming back into focus for me. I spoke to a guy who had worked for years in local government and then had had a complete burnout and collapse of self-esteem and who was just working on this picture with lots of different colored dots. And I said, so do you think of yourself as an artist? And he said, aye, why not? You know, you, you, you could see how people were reimagining who they were because who they were before didn't work. And when I asked the people who run Art Angel, what are you doing here? Like, why does this work? They said, this is a space of safety and hope. We're creating a space of safety and hope. And that's such a rare thing in the world these days. So Art Angel was, I was really moved by Art Angel because I could, I, everybody I spoke to, I, I, I left with this real sense of what it feels like when the hippocampus starts to grow back again. Having an active imagination is a healthy thing. If we have a child who's two who can't imagine anything, we think, what's going on here? This is like, really? What's but somehow when we're adults, we just assume that's absolutely fine and that's how it is. Having an active imagination is kind of the, 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 a, a sort of a, a byproduct of everything else being okay and doing well. And... Uh, when I was at Art Angel, one of the things I really wanted to include in the book, but in the end, the decision, the editorial decision was that we weren't going to include any uh, any images, was that every year at Art Angel, to evaluate how well they're doing, they give their artists a piece of paper with two silhouettes of a human body, and they show fill. They say fill these to show how you first one to show how you felt before you came here, the second to show how you feel now you've been coming here for a while. And I looked at a big stack of these, and it and it was just amazing and it was really that feeling of what does it feel like when you when you rebuild your hippocampus and the one that really stood out to me that i use in talks the before one was just like splatters of black paint on this silhouette the after one was all done in kind of glitter pens and it had these beautiful wings out the back and it was just beautiful and i when i show that in talks i say well firstly that's what it feels like when you rebuild your hippocampus. But secondly, if we're going to do everything the climate scientists tell us we need to do in the next 10 years, which is the time they tell us we've got to do it in, and we're not talking about this net zero by 2050 nonsense, this is like a sort of an actual zero carbon society by 2030, what would it feel like if we actually did that? It would have felt like we lived through a revolution of the imagination to get there. When we changed everything, what does it feel like to live through a revolution of the imagination? I've got no idea. There hasn't been one in my lifetime. But when I sat there in that office in Art Angel in Dundee and I looked through that pile of, of, of drawings, I got a sense of what it would feel like.
Wow. That, I mean, I read your book and hearing that story for even the second time just like really touches my heart. It's so mm. beautiful. And I, I really resonate with what you were saying about we can't have a future that we haven't imagined. And a lot of people are like, oh, these dystopian novels are coming to existence. And I'm like, well, we also laid the path. <laughs> we explained what a dystopian society could look like. And we don't have any utopian societies that we ever had in these novels. And people are drawn to that. And so everyone's like, oh, they predicted the future. I'm like, or did we write it down? <laughs> did <laughs> yeah. we lay the path for the future? <laughs> So that's why I love the work that you do, because um, in all of your podcasts, you ask, like, what what do you see in 2030? And so people are constantly imagining a better future rather than dystopic. And so the climate crisis we've touched upon multiple times, it's it's the biggest threat that we face today. Um, So in your explorations, what are some of the most exciting, creative solutions that you've seen? Yeah, and well, before I say that, just to say, when you're talking about dystopias, you know, I I, I feel Walida Imarisha, who wrote a book called Octavia's Brood about the work of Octavia Butler, she mm, said, yes. "All organizing is science fiction." I think it's mm. so beautiful. Organ, all organizing is science fiction. There's so much of what we do comes down to the storytelling, and you know, the the stories that we tell really shape our future. You know, did we? Did the first uh, mobile phones look like the communicators in Star Trek just by chance? Or was it because people, a whole generation of people grew up watching Star Trek and thinking, I want one of those. And actually then when we got to that stage, well, of course, that's what they were going to look like. You know, w- w- when we went to the moon in 1969, we'd been going to the moon for, for decades before that in stories, in cartoons, in, in, in storybooks. By the time we actually went to the moon, we'd been there thousands of times. And, and that's you have to create the longing first uh, in order to get there. And dystopian stories, I think, can be useful for saying, don't go down that way. But we also really, really need the stories that say, God, it could be so amazing. So, so, so amazing. So some of the things that I've seen, or the, um, I mean, I get to travel around quite a lot and visit different places doing really good stuff. So I visit a lot of amazing urban farms. I visit projects where they use old underground spaces in cities to grow mushrooms in a way that's just beautiful. Uh, rooftop farms. Uh, projects that are welcoming people who are having forced to move because of the climate uh, emergency. I visited a restaurant the other day in Marseille in the south of France where they just cook from the heat of the sun. They have a big mirrored dish out the back. They focus the heat in. They cook in a completely zero carbon way using amazing food and uh, uh, making amazing food. And they're just about to start uh, to build a whole new restaurant from timber that is surrounded by gardens and ponds. Uh, I visited this this summer. I went to Cornwall to visit a beaver rewilding project where they've reintroduced beavers on, onto this farm. It was just, I'm so in love with beavers. It's just ridiculous. And I came away so taken with when you allow beavers to transform a landscape what an extraordinary job they do and how the biodiversity he's the guy who showed us around said adding beavers to to a landscape is like throwing petrol onto a fire like the the biodiversity just goes completely mad so the thing with all of this is is it's like we aren't waiting for anyone to invent 
anything. We're not waiting for some someone to develop some amazing new technology or, or the great app that we're all waiting for. We know how to do all of this stuff. Paul Hawkins' uh, book, Drawdown, pulls all that stuff together. We know that it is from the stuff we we imagine, like moving to 100% renewable energy really quickly, to insulating all the houses, but it's also down to educating and empowering women around the world, to new forms of democracy, to uh, um, uh, you know refilling our oceans with seaweed and, and rewilding all this stuff. It's like that, and the beautiful thing about that is that none of that stuff makes our lives worse in any way. And I'm just reading this beautiful book, which I can't remember what it's called at the moment. It'll come to me uh, about the future where he talks about the future. And he said, you know, so much of the language we use about collapse and extinction just shuts the future down. The future just kind of disappears. And he said, actually, maybe most mammals have a lifespan of about a million years. And most mammals aren't anywhere near as smart as we are. Humans have been around for about 300,000 years. Given the fact that we can improve our health care and stuff, you could imagine maybe humans might be around for 5 million years, 6 million years, something like that. So we're really in the in the dawn of what humanity could be and how extraordinary it could be. And it could create a world where it lives in harmony with the world around it and culture and art flourish. And we are live in this world where surrounded by the extraordinary things this world can be. You know, I feel like we need to, we have to re-inhabit the future again. It's something I always do when I do talks is I bring my time machine and I ask people to travel with me and we do it on the podcast every time. And it's just so beautiful to, to kind of rediscover and reconnect to that future because the poet Rilke once said, the future must enter into you a long time before it happens, which is so beautiful. The future must enter into you a long time before it happens. And I think we forget that quite a lot in our activism and it's really important that we reconnect people to it absolutely so obviously in this uh podcast we've talked a lot about how important imagination is creativity is for a better future for our our environment for the planet for human health how can some of our listeners today increase their imagination how can we foster more creativity I think the first thing is by is by recognizing that it's important. You know, what what do our lives become if we allow our imaginations to kind of desiccate and dwindle? It's not great. So it's something that we need to give some time and attention to. Uh, so I would say I'd say the main thing is that we need to create space, intentional space for our imaginative lives. So that can be having a day or two a week where we put our phone away. We allow ourselves to walk and to read novels and to draw and to just be around outside. I think, I always think forests are one of the most important places for our imaginations, particularly when you walk in a forest and you look up at the under, at the, at the kind of understory of the, like look up at the canopy of the tree and the light coming through it, particularly at this time of year. Uh, because, um, and I have absolutely no scientific evidence for this at all, but I'm, I'm convinced there's something that happens physically when you stand and look up at something that it's why we build cathedrals and why we build tall things like that, that I think there's, 
that kind of sense of awe that we get when we look up at things that are bigger than us is something that's really useful for our imagination. I think going to do improv class is really brilliant. I did it when I was researching the book, that kind of theatrical improvisation training where you basically learn to play again as an adult. You learn the value of yes and rather than yes but. And so many of us live in work lives and educational worlds which are all about yes but you know hey we could do this yeah well yeah but you know we did that before it's too expensive or we can't there's no time yes but yes but and actually creating a reconnecting with that yes and that is so essential to good play is really important um anything which is cultivating some kind of an arts practice whether it's journaling or drawing or printmaking or any of those things are really really good and and finding spaces with other people where you get together and you do that. And I would say, with well, with my background in the in the transition movement, getting together and doing something, something that makes an, an impact on where you live. And even if it's just meeting and planting a few fruit trees on your on a bit of ground at the end of your street, something you can start to point to and say, since I got into this stuff that changed you know i can now walk around my town and i can see lots of things changed because we started transition here from small things to kind of bigger things so i think doing something that that in in a tangible way changes the world around you for the better is also really really good that's beautiful thank you for those suggestions and i haven't seen any studies on looking up but they found that when you are working at your computer, you should be looking up at the horizon every once in a while because when you're focused so specifically and minutely on a, on your cell phone, on your computer, it increases your sympathetic response, so your trust stress response, which, like you were saying, cortisol decreases yeah. the hippocamp hippocampus. And then instead, if you're looking at the horizon, your parasympathetic or your rest and digest lowers the cortisol allows you to become more creative, less stressed. Um, so it, maybe it's connected to that. But Yeah, there's a beautiful book called The Nature Fix. I can't remember who it's by, which is all about all that research as well, about what just being outdoors does for you and, and how it changes people's brainwaves and all that kind of thing. So get outside. <laughs> <laughs> yes, experience the beauty of nature. I just yeah, ran during the sunrise this morning and it was absolutely gorgeous um, on the beach, which I'm just lucky to be by the beach. But wow. well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not bad at all. And so usually uh, in our podcast, we end with uh, a question where we ask you to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. But I think today I'm going to borrow your time machine, if that's okay. <laughs> and we can hop into that. And we set it for 2030, as you always do. <laughs> Tinkering around. Thank you for that. Um, and so we're in 2030. If you step out of the time machine, what do you see? Yeah, it's a good time to do this because we just had the disbelief suspenders and the cynicism overriders uh, replaced. So it's in full working order now. So that's good. Perfect. <laughs> So what do I see? So I see a um, a world where where the air smells very different to how it did before. It smells much more like kind of spring in the mountains. Uh, you can smell growing things. You can smell uh, the, the the trees. The city is much quieter. The sounds of before 
that we remember from 10 years ago have really been replaced by the sound of children playing in the streets, the sound of bicycles going by, like a um, just flowing past us, this sort of flicker of bicycles going past. We hear trams, electric trams. We can hear the public transport system that is so much more brilliant and efficient and really about five years ago meant that you would have been mad in any city to have a car because the combination of public transport cycling and also of sort of small electric vehicles scooters electric bikes really revolutionized really revolutionized urban transport uh, by now you know we're well on the way to insulating houses it was a massive program of insulating houses it created so many jobs starting with the poorest the worst housing stock there was a ban on new oil and gas extraction about five years ago. And although we still use some petrochemicals for things, we don't use them for transport anymore. We don't use them for heating anymore. We've come to really appreciate how precious and extraordinary those things are. And we just use them for things that we really need them for. Um, our cities are much wilder. We don't see so many lawns anymore. We started to see lawns as really being one of the indicators of a kind of mass psychosis that we had at that particular time where we where we had a deep distrust of nature and we wanted to keep everything ordered. And that really started to change. And so now the part of the the huge upswing in biodiversity that we see in our cities and towns is because those lawns have been replaced with really biodiverse things. And each neighborhood kind of prides itself on, on, on its levels of biodiversity. We see public buildings now that have covered all of their exterior surfaces with bird boxes and insect hotels. And so now when you go to visit the theater, it almost feels more like you're visiting a rainforest in terms of the, the, the diversity of, of that world. You don't see any homelessness anymore. It's now seven years since any people of colour were murdered by the police. Uh, we have seen a real shift in terms of how policing happens and mental health services are much more based on managing the causes, the deeper causes. We have elected governments who one of their policies is to begin the process of understanding and and. Uh, managing the trauma that really lies at the root of so many of society's problems. We see a lot more, our streets are, because we've taken so much space away from cars, that space has really been reimagined as spaces for play for children, which is now one of the key well-being indicators of cities is the number of children who play in their streets. Uh, cities as uh, roads now as forests, roads as gardens. Um, it's a it's a world where people work a lot less. A lot less people do what in the early 2020s were called bullshit jobs. You know, a lot of those jobs have kind of disappeared. People, we now really value the work that actually matters. So people who work in healthcare, people who work uh, um, in nursing and childcare are actually now better rewarded than people who work in, in, in finance and the less kind of useful uh, businesses. Society is much, much, much more equal. We no longer see 
people like Jeff Bezos and people who are just more wealthy than is imaginable. That gap has really, really narrowed. And as a result, all the indicators around mental health and teenage pregnancy and so on and so on have, have really become much more manageable. And we, it's a world that delights in its diversity and celebrates its diversity and our streets are often filled with carnival and, and celebrations and uh, it's a place it's a city so the cities are places where where we wake up every morning excited about what's happening and where we think I'm going to go around the corner and see what's happening because it'll be something really cool and kind of unpredictable and and art is just everywhere and something that everybody takes part in and yeah it's great i can't wait <laughs> oh it's so beautiful i'm excited to build that future <laughs> can't wait yeah, and, and 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 it, and it, it, it feels to me like when the thing that's really fascinating to me about it is like we've talked about my time machine and I do that exercise in every talk that I do. So I've done that in workshops with 10 people and I've done that exercise hundreds and hundreds of times now. The biggest one was with one and a half thousand people in a hall in Brussels in Belgium. What's so interesting to me is how universal the responses are. Mm. When you When people are in a safe place, and you invite them to do that exercise, they all say the bird song is so much louder, the air smells so much cleaner, people are less stressed, they less work, they work less hard, there are less cars, the air smells great, all that kind of stuff. No one ever says, oh, we've got a new IKEA that's five times bigger than the one we had, or my iPhone 28 can uh can, I don't know, uh give me a massage or something. You know, everybody it connects people into what it is fundamentally about a future that's about conviviality and connection and community and kindness. And, but somehow capitalism just overrides that all the time by selling us things that give us a short kind of dopamine hit. And we can do so much better than that. And, and why I think doing that time machine exercise matters is because it's, it helps us to, it helps us to have a new North star in our lives. And we really need that. There's an amazing film made in France in 2015 called, called Demain or Tomorrow, which was just the most massive smash hit film sensation in the French speaking world. And, uh, uh, and it had me in it, but that's not why it was such a, such a, such a thing. But, but what was so amazing about it was because I was in it, I went to loads of screenings of it. And it's a two hour film that says, okay, the future's looking really bad. We need to reimagine everything. Right, let's go and find what those things might be. So you go to visit amazing permaculture farms and uh, um, different education systems and different kind of energy approaches. It fills your hippocampus with memories and stories about how the future could be. When I went to, when it first came out, I went to about five screenings of it in Paris and I met so many young people after the, every screening, more than half the audience were young people. And this was, this was just the month after the Bataclan attacks in Paris, the terrorist attacks in Paris. I met this group of about six or seven young people came up to me after this screening of the film. They said, we love, we love this so much. And I said, why? And they said, because after the Bataclan attacks, we didn't know what our story was anymore. Like, what's the point? 
Like, what's France for? What are we doing? And now we have a story. And people talk about Generation Demain in France now, the generation who grew up with that film and with those stories and have now come through university and who are like, that's where we're going. That's the North Star that we need. So we all need that, I think. And that exercise is one way of connecting to it. Wow, thank you for sharing that. So Rob, thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. This is just such an inspiring conversation. I was just at the Regenerative Healthcare Conference at Rodale, which um, is, yeah, have you heard of Rodale? Uh, Institute. It, yeah. yeah. So it's an organic farm and they, they brought the regenerative healthcare conference was bringing together farmers and physicians and imagining a better uh, future for both nutrition and health. But it was just so imaginative and beautiful and inspiring. Uh, there's just so many like beautiful things going on and it's, it's always good to connect with people who are imagining a better future. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I always say to people is, is, you know, it can feel like change doesn't really happen, but it's happening all the time. And it happens, mm-hmm. it can happen so much quicker than we think. You know, we, we, I, we know it took from when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on the bus mm-hmm. at a time when it must have just felt so bleak and impossible and like nothing was ever going to change. It took 10 years until the civil rights legislation was passed in America. And there are so many examples, you know, like the first international sanctions on South Africa, which felt like hopeless up against something completely immovable and then 10 years it took 10 years until the new constitution was passed in in in, uh, south africa so we can do an enormous amount in the next 10 years but it's the uh but we have but we also but we need to bring the imagination to be part of that and we need to become the best storytellers we can possibly be about how that future could be wonderful well thank you again yes (laughs) thank you so much for your time My total pleasure. Thank you.